We are continuing on in the book of Acts, nearing the end, nearing the completion of this part of the story of the early church. These last couple of weeks, we've been looking at at, uh, Acts chapters 23, 24, 25, 26, places, the chapters where where Paul has, has come back to Jerusalem. And he came back to Jerusalem and he was, he, was, he was initially well received, though riots began to break out. He was arrested, really, for his own protection. And we've walked through those trials that he had, both, both with, with the Sanhedrin and then with Felix. And then last week, we looked at some trials that he had with Festus, the Roman governor, the new Roman governor, after he had been kept in prison for a couple of years. And now, Portius Festus is there, and he brings, right away, he brings Paul up. The, the Jews in Jerusalem, they have, they have not stopped thinking about Paul. It's been two years, but they still want him dead. They've, they've even got a group of guys who are willing to give their lives to assassinate him. And so they, right away, come to Festus and want to have Paul taken care of. In the midst of that, in the midst of these trials, Paul knows that, that his, his time there in Jerusalem is, is becoming risky. He senses that Festus may be willing to compromise and turn him over to the Jews, and, and he feels that his life is in danger. And so he says, he says I am here in, in, in Caesar's court. This is where I want to be. This is where I'm supposed to be tried. And if I've broken a Caesar law, a Roman law, then I will pay the punishment for that, though you and I both, he says, know that I haven't done that. And so then he makes a plea, he says, Paul says to Festus, I want to go before Caesar. And he, everything changes in that moment. Now, Paul, a Roman citizen, has made the request. He wants to go to Rome. He wants to plead his case before Caesar. He has made his appeal to the emperor. And so Festus at this point meets with his council and says, yes, as a matter of fact, you can go to the emperor, you can go to Rome, and you will head that way. And, and as we've talked about, in that moment, as, as, as Festus gives permission for Paul to go to Rome, he fulfills all of these promises that we have seen. We, we, he fulfills the promise where Jesus comes to Paul in his cell and says, your, your, your work here in Jerusalem is done, and now you're going to go to Rome and to speak there. That was two years ago for Paul. He fulfills that promise, but he also fulfills the other promises that, that when, when he's converted in Acts chapter 9, Right away we see that, that Jesus says about Paul that he's going to carry his name, he's going to carry his name to the Gentiles and also to the kings and governors. And we see, in fact, that happens even right here in, verse, in chapters 25 and 26 we talked about last week where, where King Agrippa and his sister Bernice show up in Caesarea. And Festus allows Paul to come and to share before Festus or before King Agrippa and his sister Bernice. And so they have this giant festive pomp and circumstance moment. There's there's a filled hall, there's beautiful robes, important people, formal attire, it's all there. The stage is set and Paul comes out and they let him plead his case. And he begins just to share. 
the same story. We've actually heard it several times in the book of Acts. He continues his story. He says, he says I, was, I, was a, I was a Jew. I was the best of the Jews. I was a Pharisee. I, I chased down Christians. I tried to kill them. And then the light shone, and I was converted, and then I went and traveled to the Gentiles. And he, and he shares all of those things, and he, and he focuses on, in the midst of his conversion story, he focuses on Jesus' words. And he says, Jesus told me that part of my mission, part of my purpose, part of my calling was to open the eyes of people who lived in the dark, to move them from the power of Satan to the power of God, that they might receive forgiveness for their sins, that they might have the comfort and assurance of faith with other believers, and that it all might come to fruition through faith in Jesus Christ. And he points to our only hope being faith in Christ. As he's doing that, as he's sharing that testimony, his, his excitement builds more and more, and you can even see it as you read through it. So much so, he gets so excited that finally Festus stops him and says, Paul, you're, you're, you're crazy. You're, you're, in, um, you're in mania right now. You're, you're going crazy about what you're sharing. And Paul says, I'm not crazy. What I am is free, he says. And so he says to King Agrippa, he says, he says do you believe it? You, you know what the prophets have said. You, you've heard it. Do you believe? And King Agrippa says, do you think in such a short time that you could convert me, make me a Christian? And Paul's response, as we shared last week, Paul's response as he stands there chained up in chains. Everyone else is dressed up. Everyone else has their formal robes on. Everyone else is in their best clothing. The trumpets have sounded. The people have come. The, the king has sat on the throne. And Paul has been drug in from prison, chained still. And he says, what I want, King Agrippa, is that I pray that you might know the freedom that I have the freedom that I have found in Christ. I'm the one that's chained and yet I'm free. You're the one in the robes and yet you're lost. The king hears that and immediately stands and the trial is over. And they gather together, Festus and King Agrippa, and, and say, you know, this man has done nothing wrong. In fact, he could be free right now if he had not appealed to Caesar, and yet he has, and so they are ready, prepared to send him off to Rome. And that's where we come to here now in chapter 27. Paul has, a, he has, has, has appealed to Caesar. He's, 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 he's gone before the Sanhedrin. He's gone before Felix. He's gone before Festus. He's had all of these different appearances before all of these leaders, none of them, None of them have finished the trial. None of them have given him a sentence. None of them have convicted him nor freed him. And so he has appealed to Caesar and now it's time for him to go. And yet, just as this story has gone all the way through, this is not smooth sailing for Paul either. We're gonna read it together in, in Acts chapter 27. Let's read together. It'll be on the screen. It's also page 936 if you're using a pew Bible this morning. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, 
They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship in the Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day, we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Sindus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed into the lee of Crete to off Salome. Coasting along it with difficulty, we found a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lacia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, called a northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Cotta. We managed with difficulty to secure the boat, ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and with no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned." Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred the injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as they were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat onto the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day had begun to, was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take on some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. 
for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. When he said these things, he took bread, giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on it, on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then, hoisting the foresail in the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and, re- and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to make for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. This passage, as Paul begins his journey to Rome, is, is kind of difficult for us to understand. We live in northeastern South Dakota. So if there is ever landlubber title for anyone, it would be us. We don't have sailboats. We don't know what it's like to sail across the sea. And yet, Luke gives us an unbelievable description of what happened during these months that it takes them to get across the sea. This journey should have only taken about five weeks in optimal conditions, from Caesarea all the way then into Rome, but instead, this journey for Paul takes a little over four months. Luke is traveling with Paul again. Aristarchus is also traveling. And these two men are not prisoners, as Paul is, and so these two men are are actually purchasing a ticket to ride along with Paul on the prisoner boat. And the trip, as they begin on this prisoner transport to Rome, starts off fairly well. They start off on a small boat, a coastal boat. They travel along the edge. They don't stray very far out into the sea. The winds are against them, and so they they try to travel as close to shore as possible. That's the lee area along the ship, along the island's edge, trying to stay out of the the winds that are against them. They travel along the coast. They, they even get to a, a town called, called Sidon where they, where they dock for a little bit and the, Julius, the guard, lets Paul off to, to, to visit with his friends and to be taken care of there. And they finally, get, they finally get to the town called Myra. It's there that they need to get off of this little boat that they're on and get on the bigger boat, the boat that comes from Alexandria, the boat that's loaded with grain from Egypt that's headed to Rome. It's a big boat. One of the bigger boats probably in that area. It's able to to hold this large, large grain shipment as well as 276 people on board. And so the grain and the prisoners are loaded up and they begin to head off and right away come into some rough conditions. 
It pushes them to the south. They think they're able. In fact, I, can, I have a map that you can kind of see. It'll, it'll be difficult if you're in the back. But you can kind of see their route. They, instead of heading straight across, they, they come down and they're trying to go around this island Crete again to, to hide from the winds. The winds are those blue arrows coming from the, the northeast there. They're trying to hide from that wind. They're trying to come down around the island of Crete and swing through. But it takes so long for them to get there that they stop. They stop in a place called Fair Havens. It's in Fair Havens that they have to decide what they're going to try to do from that point on. And in Fair Havens, they get a couple, they get a couple of different suggestions and ideas. Paul who himself is, is quite a traveler. We know from, from the letter to the Corinthians that he's already written to the Corinthians. He mentions there that he's been shipwrecked three times. So Paul has, has, has probably sailed thousands, hundreds, if not thousands of miles on his own, I mean, or, or on a boat, not necessarily by himself, but he has already traveled probably thousands of miles. He's been shipwrecked three times. He's, he's an experienced traveler. He's an experienced sailor. He knows the risks that they're taking. He knows that it's wintertime, or headed into wintertime at least. Luke tells us in this passage that the fast has already passed. That fast in that time of year in, in 59 AD is probably when this happened. The fast would have been in the early part of October, so that's already passed. And the travelers, the sailors in the Mediterranean Sea during this period of history, they knew that after September, if you were to try to sail after September, it was risky. But if you began to travel and wanted to travel between November and February, it was impossible. In fact, they would pull their boats completely out of the water and let them winter for those months. And so... The fact that it's mid-October, Paul already knows we've had a hard time to get here to Fair Havens. We probably should winter here. We shouldn't go on. And he tells them that. He says, this is the place for us to spend our winter. And Luke tells us that after Paul gives that advice, the Roman guard, the centurion, he disregards Paul's advice and instead listens to the ship's captain and to the owner of the boat. They don't want to spend the winter in Fairhaven. This is, not, this is not the city that they want to spend the next months in. It's not the place that they want to go. And they have this large load of both wheat and prisoners, of which they are not going to get paid for unless they can reach their destination. And so even though it's took too long to get to this place where they are, even though they still have a long ways to go, they take off and they continue on. They think that they can continue on and find a better spot at least to winter, but they hope even that they might make it all the way. And he tells us in verse 13 of chapter 27, Luke says, after they've made this decision, now when the south wind blew gently, they supposed that they had obtained their purpose. The south wind began to blow gently as they took off out of fair havens. This is the calm before the storm. And you know that phrase, as I say it, you've heard that. And yet this picture is exactly, exactly what that means. 
They've had a tough go of it so far. It's been pretty hard for them so far. The travel has taken way longer than it should take. But now they set out just trying to maybe make it just around the corner to Phoenix and the south, gentle south winds begin to blow and they are encouraged in the calm before the storm. How often, how often are we caught by the calm and gentle winds right before the storm? That happens in our lives all the time, doesn't it? Things have been kind of hard. It's been a lot of work to get to where we are. Things have come against us, but now, now we're encouraged by the gentle winds. And really all it is is a moment to catch our breath. Everything seems to be going in the right direction right before the storm comes. That's what happens here in this story for Paul. The gentle winds come and we are encouraged by that. We think that we have obtained our purpose and we're headed off in just the way that we want to go with the south winds. And then Luke says, we had those gentle south winds, but now we have a tempestuous wind. A tempestuous wind. I don't hear the weatherman on Kello say that very often here in South Dakota, but I think we know what it is. We understand tempestuous winds. The nor'easter strikes, and it strikes and it hits hard. The sailors, they do everything, and, and Luke is writing it out for us. We're, we're seeing it. We're, we, uh, landlubbers, we don't understand it all. But Luke is spelling it out. He says the, 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 the lifeboat is going crazy, so they have, to, they have to tie it down and secure it to the boat. And then they're afraid that the whole boat hull is going to explode and break open, and so they take ropes and they wrap them all around the boat, all the way under and to the top, and they tie them off, trying to hold the boat together. Then, after that, they begin to throw things overboard. They, they, have a, uh, they lower the gear, which, which I'm, I'm told as I read this week is, is like an a underwater sea parachute, like a giant sheet that they throw out in the water and tow behind the boat so that they, it slows them down and they're better able to try to control the movement of the boat. They, so they throw the gear overboard. They're, 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 they're trying to hold the boat still, and that's not enough. So they begin to jettison the cargo. They begin to throw everything that they can throw off. In fact, they throw off the ship's tackle with their own hands, Luke says. That's probably the main sail, maybe even the mast that holds the main sail. They throw over. This tempestuous wind, this storm is no small storm. These sailors are doing everything that they can do. They've thrown off even the main parts of the boat so that they can just survive. The idea of sailing forward, the idea of trying to get to Rome, those visions are gone. And now it's just, let's just survive. The storm goes on all day, all night, day after day. After day. In fact, Luke tells us that there's no sun and there's no moon and there's no stars for 14 days. For us, that means that there's no 
cell service and GPS. There's no map. They don't know where they are. They don't have any idea where they're going. They can't see anything. They're lost, they're confused. And in fact, Luke says it in verse 20, he says, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. That's the kind of storm that they're in. You understand those kinds of storms, right? Where all of our hope of being saved is abandoned? Because we've had them too. They look differently. This is an actual literal storm that Paul's in. For us, they look differently. But we know it. And Paul, in this moment, stands up and speaks and says, listen to me now. You should have listened to me before you didn't. But listen to me now, he says. Take heart. Take heart, Paul says. Do you remember where we heard that just not too long ago? Take heart. Take courage. Same word. Jesus said it to Paul in the jail cell. When things were not going his way, when he makes a prom, when Jesus makes a promise to Paul and says, you're going to go to Rome and you're going to speak there, he says, take courage, take heart. Paul now uses the same phrase, take heart. It's going to be no loss of life. An angel has appeared to me, an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. An angel to the God of whom I belong and whom I worship. That God, he says, has sent a message that I'm going to stand in Rome before Caesar and it's not just me. Paul's already known this promise from a couple of years ago. But he says it's not just me, but everyone. Everyone on this boat will survive. Not even a hair on your head is going to be touched, Paul says later. Everyone will survive and it will be exactly as I have been told. Paul says, even in the midst of this storm, for 14 days, for 14 days the wind is blowing and the sun is covered and the moon is covered and the stars are covered. The ship, if you can only imagine. And he says, I trust in the sovereignty of God. It will be exactly, it will be exactly as I have been told. So take heart. I trust in the sovereignty of God. And then he says, and then he says, take heart. I have faith in God. It will be exactly as I've been told. And then in verse 26 it says, but we must run aground on some island. He says, this storm is going. I trust in the sovereignty of God, but it's not over and it's not going to end super well. It's going to be hard for us all the way to the very end. I trust in the sovereignty of God, but we have to get this boat to run it aground on an island. There's an interesting mix in this whole passage, an interesting mix in resting in the sovereignty of God and then trusting in the knowledge and the hands of men. We see it in a number of ways where Paul is resting in the sovereignty of God, knowing that God has made a promise, and when God makes a promise, God accomplishes and fulfills that promise. He's made a promise to Paul two years ago in his jail cell. He's made another promise to Paul here on the boat. And Paul can rest 
in the sovereignty of God. And yet, and yet, there's all kinds of things for sailors to do. There's all kinds of things for men to do. They have to rest in the knowledge and in the hands of men while trusting in the sovereignty of God. The storm continues, and they do everything that they can do to survive. Even, in fact, after they hear this from Paul, after they, they have heard that everyone's going to be saved, they still continue to work hard. They hear, they hear the, the waves sound a little differently off on one side of the boat. They're probably coming along the edge of an island. They hear it and they sense that they're close to land. They still can't see anything. The boat is still going crazy. But they sense that they're off land, and so they began to take soundings. In fact, they, they throw four anchors off the back of the boat, again, to try to slow them down so they don't rush into the islands or rush into the rocks. In fact, there's some soldiers who, who have heard what Paul has said, that they're all going to be safe, and yet they decide to take maybe it into their own hands and jump in the lifeboat and, and get away. And the soldiers come and cut the ropes off and send the boat off. And then as dawn approaches, Paul gets them again together and he says, it's time to eat. For 14 days, they haven't eaten. For two full weeks, they haven't eaten. And you can only imagine why. They're scared. They're in the middle of a storm. But they're also going up and down. And seasickness would have been a very real thing for these sailors and these prisoners. They haven't eaten in 14 days. And Paul says, you're going to need some nourishment. You're going to need some strength. And then, the next thing that Luke tells us in the midst of that is they eat. They, Paul prays over the food. He gives thanks to God in the presence of all. And then it says in verse 36, and then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. They were encouraged and ate some food themselves. It's right after that that they see some land. And they hope to head their ship right to it. They want to beach their ship right on the shore. And so they, they, they release the rudder. They've actually had the rudder off the boat and tied onto the deck because they didn't want it to break apart and get lost in the storm. And so they, they put the rudder back on and they now are trying to steer the ship as well as they can to, to get right to the beach so that they can beach it there and survive. And as they're doing that, as they're headed right into to what they think is going to be safety and rescue, instead of getting into the beach, they hit a sandbar, they hit a reef. And the boat is wedged on the reef. The front of the boat isn't going to move any longer, but the waves now are crashing against the back of the boat, and the boat begins to break apart. The waves are crashing. The storm is still happening. The soldiers, they decide they have to kill all the prisoners because they cannot let them escape. They cannot let them get free if they're to swim to shore and escape. It will be their lives. And so the soldiers decide they're going to kill all of the prisoners, but Julius, the leader, steps in. He wants to rescue, he wants to save Paul's life. And so instead, they just command all of the soldiers to jump in, or all of the prisoners to jump into the water. Swim if you can. Grab a hold of this ship that's quickly breaking apart. Grab the planks from the boat and swim as hard as you can into the shore. 
And Luke tells us that 276 people make it safely to land. 276 people, every one of them, all make it safely to land. We've talked about this often in this this whole book of Acts. There are moments where two years pass in in a single sentence. And then we have a chapter like this that gives us all the details of exactly how this, how this trip went. What ports did they go to? Where did they, what islands did they travel next to? How exactly, how exactly did the sailors try to save the ship in the midst of the storm? We have all the details. And so our question, as we've had several times, as we've been walking our way through Acts, our question is, what, what can we apply? What principles do we see in this? What can, we, what can we learn from this passage? What did Luke want us to see, and what does God have for us today in Acts chapter 27? And I think the question that we have to say is, what do we do? What's the application for us in the midst of the storm? when the tempestuous wind comes against us. It'll look different. We're not sailing in the Mediterranean, most of us anyway. But there are absolutely days. There are absolutely times when you can't see the sun. There are absolutely days and weeks and months and sometimes years where you have no idea of what direction is up. The sun and the moon and the stars have disappeared. And life is so rough and everything is coming at you so fast and the waves are so big that you aren't even able to eat in the midst of it. And the storm is coming against you. And it looks different for all of us. The storm is brought by all kinds of different things. The tempestuous wind for us is all different. For some, it's when the doctor calls and says, I have your report, but I'd like you to come in and hear it from me. And you know what that means. Or for some, it's when the, the bill that you didn't expect comes due and you have no idea how you're going to pay it or the next one, or the next one. For some of you in here, it's, it's not even those tempestuous winds, but it's the, it's the homework assignments that you just haven't been able to figure out, and your grade is starting to plummet lower and lower, and you cannot figure out the concepts, and it begins to feel heavy on you. And the tempestuous winds blow what do you do in the midst of those storms? I think we can see a few things from this passage. I think the first thing that we saw in the midst of, of this storm for Paul is this. What Luke tells us is that these sailors in the midst of the storm did absolutely everything that they knew to do. That's the first principle. Do everything that you know what to do. 
That's what the sailors did. They, 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 strapped, down, they strapped down the boat. They, they threw ropes all the way around the boat and tied them on so that the hole wouldn't crash. They, they, they in fact, later, they, they throw all the grain that they're trying to get to Rome. That's their, their money. They throw it overboard. They throw the main sail overboard. They throw the parachute off the back. They do it all. Everything that they know to do, they do it. There's never a point in this story where all of the sailors just get down in the hole and they just say, we're not going to do anything else. We're just going to ride it out. There's never a moment that they do that. At every place, they do everything that they know how to do. They don't give in. They work hard. They take every chance. They do everything they're supposed to do. The second thing I think we see in the midst of this is that we need to remember to whom we belong and to whom we worship. It's the second point here in my application because it comes secondly in the story, but I think it's the most important. Paul says, there's this angel that came to me. He's the, it's an angel from the God that I belong to and the God that I worship. We have to remember the God of whom we belong to. And there's lots of ways for us to do that. I think there was probably lots of ways that Paul and Luke and Aristarchus and maybe some others that were on the boat that were believers as well. There's ways to remind yourself whom you belong to and whom you worship. That you spend time reminding yourself of who it is that you belong to and worship. Who, who is your God? What are his names? You remember the promises that you've read, that you've written down, that you have trusted on in the past. You remember the verses that you have learned and memorized and hidden in your heart. You sing the songs that come to mind. You trust in the things that you have hidden away for exactly this moment. And you remember to whom you belong and whom you worship. You trust you trust in your anchors, as the sailors did. And the third thing I think you do, I think the third thing that Paul shows us here, or that Luke shows us here, is that we prepare for the next step. You prepare for the next step. There's a moment. In, in the midst of the storm, the storm is still going. It's been 14 days. The sun is a shine. The, the clouds are still covering up the sun and the moon and the stars. And in that moment, Paul says, you haven't eaten for 14 days, and it's time for you to eat. It's time for you to get strong. They had to have some food. There was something that was about to happen. The ship is about to break open and they're going to have to get to shore and they're going to need some strength. They're going to need physical strength in order to get safely to land. And so Paul says, you need to eat. You have to get some strength. And there are moments when we're in the storm when we have to do the exact same thing. Moments when you don't want to eat, when it makes you sick to eat. But you have to get strengthened up. And, 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 and maybe that's not physical food for you, but maybe, maybe there comes the place where you just have to find help. Where you just have to find the counsel of a friend. Where you just have to do the next thing so that you can be ready. When the storm begins to subside, you can be ready. But you have to strengthen up for it. 
And then lastly, the last thing I think that we see in the midst of this, we're trusting in God's sovereignty all the way through. And yet, the last thing that we see all of these prisoners and all of these sailors do is that when the boat hits the reef and it begins to break apart, none of them just sit back and say, you know what, Paul told us that there's not going to be a hair on our head that gets hurt. None of them sit back and say, we're just going to wait for the waves to push us in. None of them sit back and think, the boat's probably going to hold. Instead, you know what they do? They jump off the boat into the water and they swim with all their might to get to the shore. They swim with all their might to get to the shore. None of them just lay in the water doing the backstroke. It's not a vacation. They swim. They grab, they grab parts of the boat that have broken off. They grab the planks and they swim and they kick and they paddle. And they work hard. When the opportunity shows itself, when the end of the storm shows itself, when there's a crack and you think, here is the rescue, here is the way, you go with everything that you have. You swim as hard as you can. You put everything that you have into it. You use all the strength that you just ate the food for and kick and paddle as hard as you can. The worship team is going to come and lead us today. We trust in the sovereignty of God. Paul trusted in the sovereignty of God. In fact, there's a moment in, in Fairhaven when, when they're trying to decide whether or not they should go on and, and Paul is the one that's saying, this is where we should winter. We should stop here and winter here in Fairhaven. And, and the soldier, Julius, he doesn't listen to Paul, but instead listens to the ship's pilot and the, and the ship's owner. And they do travel on from there. It seems to me that in that moment, Paul, Paul could say, you know what, Jesus in my jail cell a couple of years ago promised that I'm going to get to Rome. And so when we leave from here, I'm fine. You guys are the ones that are going to be in danger. But he doesn't say that. He says, from my sailing experience, from what I see, we should stay here in Fairhaven. We should winter overnight, over, over the winter here for the next few months. We should, we should stay here. There's this mix of knowing that God is going to do what he has promised, trusting in the sovereignty of God, and then using our own understanding, our own intellect, our own ability, and doing what God has told us and helped us to know to do. In fact, later when Paul, if you remember, in the second time that Paul speaks, he says, you should have listened to me. I was right. We should have stayed back there. But now, God has made a promise for all of us. We're all going to make it. We're going to trust in the sovereignty of God and yet we're going to eat some food. We're going to swim with all our might. We're going to do everything we can to get through the storm. God will bring us to the end. It's not going to, it's not going to be a smooth beaching like what we had hoped. But we're going to make it. And we're going to trust in the sovereignty of God. Let's stand this morning and sing.
God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform He plants His footsteps in the sand And rides upon the storm Deep in His darkened head With never failing skill He fashions all his bright designs And works his sovereign will So God, we trust Fearful saints, your courage stay. The clouds that you now dread are big with mercy and will rank in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. But trust Him for His grace Behind a frowning providence He hides a smiling face So God, we trust are great and comforts feel we hope in mercies avenue we trust in you God's purposes will ripen Unfolding every hour The bud may have a bitter taste But sweet will be the flower Blind unbelief is sure to end And scan his work in vain Trust in you. 
When tears are great and comforts feel, we hope in mercies ever new. When tears are great and comforts feel, we hope in mercies ever new. We trust in you. promises that we trust in we trust in this this is what root what Paul wrote to the Romans before two years before he actually makes this trip to go he says what shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also graciously give us all things who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or tempestuous winds? As it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you for coming this morning.